Hey folks, it's John from A's for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Stephanie Strange, a singer-songwriter out of Portland, Oregon. We had a great conversation. We talked about music. We talked about drugs, alcohol, recovery, sobriety, comic books, all kinds of stuff. Neurodiversity groups. Who even knew that was a thing? I didn't. So it was a really great conversation. Um, We also, I ended the show, if you stay tuned at the end of the show, for her song, One Year Sober. It's great. It gives you a little flavor of what she does, who she is. And um, yeah, it was just an all around great conversation. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Stephanie Strange. I found you on SoundCloud, actually. Okay. Yeah, I was looking through podcasts and, um, you know, it's there's so many different ways to find support these days. So mm-hmm. Years was one of the first podcasts that came up. And um, I had just done a show at the Alano Club here in Oregon. And it kind of get, gave me that idea that I could seek other places. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. How was the show at the Alano Club? Oh, it was so wonderful. Yeah, I, um, it was I believe it was just in a room full of people. It was really it was packed out and there was no plug in, which is great and unique to not have amplification, um, really intimate in some ways. And then also kind of challenged me in ways to connect with the audience. And I got to tell stories um, things I don't, I learned that you don't tell every audience. So I got to get really dirty and intimate and down in there with some of the, some of the stuff I sing about. And yeah, then where some of my inspiration comes from. That's awesome. I mean, that's, I think one of my favorite things about places like the Alano club or meetings in, in whatever. I mean, even if, if, um, if AA is not your thing, I think it's really, it's a really helpful thing for me to be able to share those, those kind of heavier, darker things that people, um, that you just don't talk about. And in fact, it's, it's oftentimes because it's been so liberating for me to talk about all these, you know, either awful things I've done or awful things I've been a part of, or really traumatic experiences in my past. Um, I then feel more casual. And like you said, you're like, Oh yeah, I I can't just talk about that in mixed company or wherever. And people are like, yeah, I was just saying hi. And you know, you're telling me about how, you know, whatever it was. And it's, it's, um, it's always nice to be around people who are open enough to be able to receive that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a little bit of an oversharer. Um, <laughs> I know it's a, it's a writer, you know, writing and art and, you know, that's what you put your personal stuff into your art. But um, I try not to put heaviness when I tell part of my story. I'm, I'm trying not to put weight on somebody else's shoulders. I try to tell it with lightness and self-acceptance. And but like you said, not everybody is willing to receive that no matter how it's intended. It can mm-hmm. be heavy. So for a group of people who you know, they were, it was one of the best humored crowds I've ever had. They knew that you could laugh at the darkest stuff that I was saying, which is exactly how it's intended. It's, you know, cathartic and therapeutic and it's okay. It's all okay. It has to be. And I loved being on the same, the same wavelength with everybody. That's awesome. Um, well, I guess what I would like to just start maybe from the beginning. And one of the things that you, um, that you wrote in your 
second email to me when you were sharing some of your story was that you said you were raised with some food issues. And I know this to be something that's true as well. And so I know that that was a way that I learned how to cope and it helped further other addictions later on. Yeah. So I was wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit about that to start. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I used to be kind of embarrassed about it. And mm-hmm. one of the, one of the perks of talking maybe too much, maybe just enough is that, um, you realize how many people have similarities that things are not, don't, aren't this deep, dark secret and that you're not alone in it. And I think a lot of people that I've talked to, their addiction started with food, with how we relate to food. And, um, it's, there's this embarrassment around it. There's almost, uh, legitimacy to drugs and alcohol that food doesn't have. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that is, I think that's dangerous because if we're not addressing some of these foundational things, how we take care of ourselves, how we feed ourselves, then we can't get to kind of the crux of that, that panic, that addiction, gotta fill, gotta fill, gotta fill that hole. It was, it was, it was explained to me by, uh, my, my co-host, his father, who has like 30 plus years of sobriety and he's super into AA. And he said, if you want to see some real sobriety and you want to see some real strength, go to an Overeaters Anonymous um, a meeting because imagine if you're an alcoholic, which I am, he said to me, and imagine if you have to have three shots of tequila a day and you can only have three shots of tequila. And I was like, I couldn't do it. And he's like, exactly. So yeah. um, I don't know if yours was, was it was it overeating or was it like sugar as a kid or... Just abundance in general, everything, um, Mm -hmm. that not lowing self-control, not regulating, um, it wasn't a lack of having anything. It came from having so much all the time. I think a lot of parents try to provide for their kids what they didn't have. And sometimes that can backfire, um, Mm -hmm. by having too much and not learning regulation. And yeah, that's, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing. When I quit drinking and quit taking opiates, the whole the whole shebang, they were about three years apart, but I had this food. I had to re-relate to food. And so I'm four years into recovery from alcohol, um, six from opiates, and food is still, it takes up a lot of my mental resources. And Sometimes I explain it to people if I know them well enough, and sometimes I just kind of keep it, you know, you keep that internal stuff, and you don't know what everybody doesn't need to know um, what's going on and how hard it is, but I was very rigid in my eating. I was gluten-free, vegan, sugar-free, no processed foods, and that was, the first year was really easy for me in that way. I was going to the gym all the time and over-exercising, which is also really common. And I was eating extremely rigidly to an unhealthy degree where I wasn't very flexible and I wasn't having experiences with people. I was actually avoiding going out with people and um, relating over food because I was scared of it. And it's been harder as I've learned to be more flexible because you, you know, you learn to take on a little bit more and now I eat a little bit more normally, but it's still, it's still hard. And I think that's probably, probably better 
than trying to rigidly control it because Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work for too long. No, no. I was playing this game earlier this year before I, um, and I don't want to say that I have a handle on it all as far as the food goes, but I, I think at the beginning of the year, I started to count my calories each day because I really wanted to see like what I was eating and how it was affecting me. And I really wanted to get into that sort of, I guess the personal inventory of what I ate each day. And so then I started to realize, oh, well, I can eat super light during the day. So during the day, it would be like lots of carrots and cucumbers. And then I found this low calorie ice cream that I could eat like a pint or two pints or three pints. And it would get to this point where that's what that's how I was. I was playing this weird little game with myself where I I was saying it's okay because you're still staying under that calorie count that you promised yourself so you can still indulge. And it took me, I mean, it took me a very long time, but it took me a a couple months to, I had, I did that for like two months before I finally broke down. And I, I, I said to myself, I can't keep doing this. Right. And it just got that, that level of, um, that moment of being tired of my own bullshit, you know? And especially like when you talk about quitting one thing and then and then still having another um, addiction like that's going, oh, well, I can apply these things to this other thing that I quit. And that's that's what I had to do with the food. Yeah, Um, that's that's most exhausted I've been in my recovery is facing my other stuff because, you know, mm-hmm. you, you get all your resources ready to steal yourself against alcohol and drugs and you think you have it handled. And then you look in the mirror and you realize that you have put it other places, places that you can't just quit. And it's, that's been feel that feels very defeating and heavy to me. Cause then it's just like, Oh, it's my brain. It's not the drugs. It's not the alcohol. It's, it's the brain that I'm stuck with. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to, trying to, um, what, what do I want to say? Trying to understand how my brain works and also how, what I've tried to do is understand that it is a a tool that I can use and that I I can't I shouldn't let it use me. You know, I've right. in my in my and I want to talk to you about maybe, you know, if you deal with things like a higher power and spirituality as well. But, you know, if, if there's the if there's an awareness above me and that is who I really am, then I can help not control my brain, but I can I can listen to it for certain things and I can dismiss it for other things. Right. Um so were you did you live in the Pacific Northwest um, all your life? Are you from there? I'm from the Northeast, actually. I was born in Philadelphia and raised in okay. New Jersey in an okay. American family. Okay. Uh, abundance is the norm. And that was a big, a lot of things centered around food. That's just part of, that's part of our culture. That's a lot of how we relate to each other. And, um, you know, you, it's, it's offensive if you don't finish your food and get seconds and thirds. <laughs> My grandmother, my parents are, uh, my father is on his side is from New Jersey. And I remember going back East, not too often, but a few times as a kid. And it was very much, I have never seen so much food on a dinner table or even, I'm sorry, on a breakfast table, you know, to start the day with. So I, I have a small glimpse of that. Um, And did you start drinking early on as, you know, in, as a kid or high school or? I was a really good kid. I was raised Catholic and I was a square. I remember when my friends were smoking weed in middle school and I was so offended and disappointed that I walked away from them. I was very delicate in that way. And um, 
But then in typical fashion, it was around 18 that I, the first time I ever drank, I mixed together every alcohol in my dad's cabinet in a pint glass and a little splash of Coca-Cola to cut it. And I just guzzled it. And I remember the next day, you know, I was hungover for about three hours. It was terrible. But just that way of drinking never really left me. And it was actually, uh, when I was 21, my back went out. I had Mm -hmm. a pain and it wasn't about anything. It just happened and it just never got better. And I was involved in the medical system and it was something that they, they didn't understand why I had three bulging discs and they called it degenerative disc disease because there was no other definition for it. And there was nothing they could really do. Eventually I had surgery about a year later, but at that point they handed me a bottle of Vicodin and it was, I remember very clearly that first moment because I took two as prescribed and it took my pain away and it made me feel really good. And so it created a very complicated relationship right away of, it was the first time I wasn't in pain in so long. And it also turned something on. And I just knew that I liked this and that I would be doing this. And for the next 10 years or so, I continued to have this complicated relationship and my alcohol usage started to rise over that period of time because I didn't ever, I regulated my opioids and I, you know, I was within the medical system. So I was not using it as prescribed, but also not, you know, doing it so much that it would be an issue on the medical side of things um, for the doctors. And so I upped my, upped my alcohol usage and found myself an alcoholic without even realizing it. When I quit pills, I was off pills for a couple of years before I I was walking around and I was like, I'm clean, I'm clean. I'm, you know, patting myself on the back. And then I finally had this neighbor who said, but you still drink, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, then you're not clean. You're just not taking pills. And that got my brain thinking. And at that point it was, you know, blackout drunk every night, really extreme, couldn't continue it. And so I, I got the chance to quit two separate times, which was, you know, rough, but also good because there's good things about sobriety, new sobriety as well. Sure. What, um, what was the, what was the, so you, you quit alcohol two separate times, you said, and what was the, yeah, opiates once and then alcohol after that. So what was the moment with the opiates that made you go, I have to stop this. This is, this is too much. I was living in a basement and my roommate with all good reason had told me I needed to leave. Uh, I was having trouble paying my rent. I'd gotten fired from my job. I, so I've, I also found myself without a home. Um, I had a friend, a um, friend of my mom who was willing to take me in, but it was a temporary situation. I had no income. I just knew that I didn't want to keep doing it and that there was, it was, I was never, I've never been, you know, I didn't think to myself, I don't want to continue to live, but I did think I don't want to live this way. So it was really this kind of moment. And so I decided I have nothing left to lose and I quit. It was pretty stupid, actually. I just stopped going to the doctor. Um, I quit the pills without, you know, regular, without any help from them and um, antidepressants I got off of too, because I had sort of been in the whole prescription cycle. I was on a lot of medication, Um, two different antidepressants and 
all kinds of stuff. So I just stopped all of it, went through these immense withdrawals and um, just kind of adjusted to it. And then my pain level after about a year started reducing a little bit. And that was the first break in the clouds that I saw of, oh, this chronic pain and the opiate addiction were feeding on itself. It it made the pain worse. It was a crutch that I was using and I wasn't able to ever get past this pain flare as opposed to the reality of the situation, which is everyday chronic pain, which is tolerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then so you're still drinking and you said you, you quit drinking twice. Uh, nope, just once. I might just the once. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, so you had a you had what two years? You said while you were um, and what what is your, what would you call your sobriety date? Is it? I call my sobriety date August fourteenth, um, four years ago, because okay. that was when I quit drinking, and that was really the. Mm-hmm. I mean, kicking opiates and getting off prescription medications was no small thing that rocked my world, but um, quitting drinking was where the clouds really started to part because as soon as I quit opiates, my drinking increased a lot. Um, So yeah, I'd say August 14th, 2017. Uh, 15? 16? 15. 15. Okay. Well, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. (laughs) So what happened that day or the day before whatever that brought you to the decision to quit? To quit drinking? Mm-hmm. I was working at a cafe um, that I'd been at for like four years and I'd been going in every day hungover and I had tried to the whole year I'd been trying to quit and I kept I was loudly announcing to everybody I'm going to I'm going I'm going to quit now I'm done or I'm I'm off it for three weeks or I'm going to be done for a month or I'm going to try three months or three days and it was this endless kind of cycle until everybody just stopped believing in me and believing what I was saying. Um, and um, I think just being a contrarian did it. I was just like, hey, seriously, though, I'm going to do this. Like, I, I recognize that feeling of I can't live this way anymore. I was constantly dehydrated. I could every morning I would lay there and be too aware of my skull and my gums and my teeth. And, you know, it was hurt in this way that I've grown used to and and also the dark thoughts and the self-loathing and um it just it wasn't it wasn't something that could continue and it wasn't this big moment it wasn't this grand moment it was just a moment but I knew it because it had happened before so it was this just really subtle shift of oh I'm never gonna do this again I'm I'm done with this I'm moving on to something different now Mm um and what kind of, you know, you mentioned also that you didn't go the AA route. What kind of help did you seek out or do you seek out? Um, I mean, what, what, who did you talk to and what, what programs, if at all, did you use? Well, I did, I, I seek out AA when I need it in terms of find, clicking into a support mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. But I've had an interesting journey with spirituality. So that kind of scared me away from AA in some ways. Mm-hmm. And being a contrarian too. I didn't want to be part of the club. And, um, but I found it to be a wonderful resource, especially as I kind of have got feet underneath me with it. And I've used, um, some study into neurology. I'm very interested in neurology and it kind of ties the addiction and the chronic pain together since 
it's the brain. It's all about that brain. So mm -hmm. I did a lot of my own research and learning how to um, restructure habit and how we can use positive thinking and we can change our reality with the way that we think. I read a really interesting book, um, The Mind and the Brain, and it talked about OCD patients who had um, fMRIs a year ahead and then they did this positive thinking and a year later they had another fMRI and the structures of their brain had actually changed. They You can change the physical landscape of your brain with by the thoughts that you think. And so I started practicing that and really just dove into it and became pretty obsessed with it. And then I used, um, I'm an artist, I'm a musician, and I've been writing for a few years. And so I, creativity has been huge in that regard for helping me stay sober and be strong in it and really embrace it and not treat it like this burden, but more of a, almost like a superpower. Yes, I, I I was thinking the same thing. I remember when I first quit and I stopped having hangovers and I said, oh, my gosh, I feel so great in yeah. the morning. What is this? Is this what normal people feel like? This is yeah. amazing, you yeah. know, because to wake up in a deficit every single morning and have to dig myself out of this hole. Oh, so I I absolutely the superpower. Um. Can I ask you, you said that um you had done some study in spirituality that kind of made you shy away from AA at mm -hmm. first. Is that yeah. is that correct? And then so what was that? What what I mean, in what regard would you how would you describe your spirituality then and now? Well, I was raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. and that my family sort of just slowly drifted away from the church. And it just wasn't really for us in a lot of ways. And it never, it, as a child, I believed in it, but then it just sort of was this, um, not, I wasn't feeling much. And so I have gone back between considering myself atheist and agnostic and um, have come into a little bit more spirituality over the last year or two um, in sobriety and feeling like there is, there's more. And I, don't, I still don't know what that is. I'd still call myself agnostic. I just mm -hmm. consider that respectful, though. I think it's yeah. a little presumptuous to try and define everything. So I think it's okay to be like um, observing that things are, there's more to it while still not knowing what it is. Um, so when I say I'm agnostic, I don't mean I'm not spiritual because I certainly am. And I feel that in communion with other people all the time, whether that's in an AA meeting or um, in singing with somebody or making music with somebody or creating art or just conversation. Um, it's tangible and you can feel it. Um, so that's where I, I'm at with it now. But those AA meetings, just the word God, I had trouble with the word God. I had trouble with the, you have to accept, you have to accept God and acknowledge God in order to move forward. And I know that they say that God can be whatever you want it to be, but that was just a little too loose for me in my rigid brain. I right. was kind of, you know, fighting. Yeah, I always, um, it was a very difficult thing for me as well. And I still have a very vague sense that there's something else there. And when I feel things working that are beyond my control and I go, oh, wow, why did that happen? Well, 
there's something is is working and it's not me right. and that's kind of that my relationship with with a higher power or with a god or you know whatever you want to call it i oftentimes joke that god is like this he's like my roommate on that i got on craigslist that works opposite hours <laughs> and so I don't ever see him in the house at the same time. But as long as I pay my half of the rent, he pays his half of the rent. And then, you know, we both keep the kitchen clean. So that's kind of my my sense of it all, because it was very difficult for me to. I remember <clears throat> my sponsor asking me to like he gave my writing assignment one one day was I need you to tell me what your problem with God and spirituality is. He said, just go home and write that. Wow. And I wrote. I, I had somewhere, um, but it was like, I don't know, five or six pages of just, I, I went and reread it and I was like, who is this person? Like, this is, there's a lot of anger and resentment and, right. you know, so I think that that's too, what I, what I find um, really important to write things down as you go along and then reread them. And, you know, as I'm sure you've looked at some of your writing as a writer before and after, um, did you also in that sense as being an artist and musician, did you ever think, oh, if I get sober, I won't be able to create in the same way? Or has that always been a constant? <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm getting over a cold here. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't think it and I wasn't really afraid of it. I idly wondered about it. And I'd, you know, read a little bit about it. Tom Waits talked about that, how um, he moved from, um, writing not so internally and writing more from external sources and not always having to carry that tortured torch <laughs> for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. and so it had been on my mind that I actually did stop writing for a while. I found that I put everything in this little box and I put it under the bed and I didn't look at it in order to make that first year of sobriety easier. And so my first year I had blinders on and I was doing the exercising and I was rigidly eating and I was working a lot and I was just really taking care of myself. And then it came to a point where I had to take the box out and that's when it got messier and harder. And that's when the creativity came back too, because I mean, it doesn't come without a price here. It's catharsis. You're processing things. Um, so it did go away for a little while, but then I built a much healthier relationship with it and I think, I hope my art became better, and it, but it, I also put out a lot less. I used to just, it used to be like a waterfall. I could be in the state of, I used to get in my basement with a pint of whiskey and just write and play music for hours and hours and hours. And, you know, now it's, it's just a little bit less output. And I think that has to do with having higher standards and putting better <laughs> stuff out. That's great. That's a great. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I agree 100%. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what kind of whiskey did you drink? If I can ask whatever, or I get whiskey? my hands on, but I was always okay. like maker's mark and okay. Yeah. You know, right. Um, yeah. were you a whiskey drinker? I, a vodka near the end. It was just, it was warm vodka oftentimes under the bed. Um, yes. just so I didn't have to, I didn't want to go anywhere. You yeah. know, and I just would bring it closer and closer. Yeah. Um, but I love that idea of having higher standards about the things that 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 you create. Like that yeah. is such an important thing, I think, for people who who create for a living or just because they, you know, they have to, you know, if you, you just you feel the desire and, and then realizing not that you're 
destroying every little thing that comes across and being like, yeah, that's bad, that's bad, or dismissing it, but that when you really want to put something out there and share something with somebody that you want it to be really good and you want to be meticulous about the thing that you're saying, you mm-hmm. know, and um, and that it's more important to you. And I think that's, I had never, I've never heard it articulated like that. And I think that's really great. Um, and so- That was actually from my friend Harold. And um, sorry, I interrupted you. Mm-hmm. He, um, I was telling him I write less as I get older, and he, he was the one who pointed out to me. But are you? But you're writing better stuff now. You're not just spraying it all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that got my wheels turning. Of oh, maybe that's there's more to this than you produce less as you get older. Mm-hmm. And um, do you ever find? Um, do you find it difficult or challenging to say, oh, now I some I mean, I don't know how much of your stuff I, I looked at the stuff you sent me and I, I watched some of the stuff I found on YouTube. But writing stuff about sobriety versus just creating in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that when I first got sober and then I started writing and a lot of it was based around sobriety. And I thought, this is not what I wanted. I don't want to be somebody who, who writes about sobriety. And then what I'm, the the thing that I'm going to create is this podcast every week. That's about sobriety. Like that's not what I wanted. That's not what I wanted from life. And I, you know, I've changed what I want, you know, more now, but, um, balancing those things. Do you, do you find that difficult or does it come easy or are you happy to write about sobriety versus other things? I'm happy to write about sobriety. I don't want to write exclusively about sobriety. And I find I have these pockets of things that I focus on. I write about being a barista and cafe work has been very interesting and um, brings some really poignant stuff to the surface and sobriety as well. And it's all tangled up in there. Um, because sometimes I'll write, you know, straight about my struggles with sobriety. I'm having a hard time. This is what it looks like. But then it has weaved itself into this um, fantastical story that has become a part of my band and this comic book series that I'm writing. And it it's it's magical. It's about I adopted a, a little black cat who's right here making a lot of noise right now. Right in my first year, it was just when I sobered up. She came into my life. She was a feral cat and I adopted her and I was having trouble with my human relationships. So I found that my relationship with this little cat was easier and I could just, you know, feel sorry for myself and be whatever I wanted to be with her. So she became this magical creature that walked in my dreams and helped me fight my fears so that I could be rested from my battles in the waking world. And so she became this little superhero and I became this little superhero. And that is, so a lot of times when I'm writing about those things, I'm really writing about sobriety and um, fear. And because sobriety, like recovery and addiction, it's, it is universal because it's just fear and everybody has fear. So, I mean, I can say it's about recovery because it is for me, but every everybody has something that they're fighting and that they're afraid of and that they need some help with. And this is the Nina nightmare. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. the, that's the comic. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I saw you sent me the cover and it looks great. The illustrations look great and um, super cool. 
Yeah, the illustrations were done by Jay Reynolds. He's a mm-hmm. local artist in town. And uh, I contacted him and told him I wanted to do this thing. And he was he was on board. And this is the this is the cover here. And it's awesome. Yeah, we did a, a short. Um, it was from a short story, just kind of introducing Nina Nightmare into the world. And this next comic book I'm really excited about. It's full length. It's going to be about 26 to 30 pages. And it's about my pen name and my character, Stephanie Strange, and it's called How Stephanie Became Strange. And it starts off with my story, um, somewhat. It's loosely based, and it has that fictional aspect to it because I don't want to write too much about, um, the, you know, because it becomes this magical narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, this idea of being born next to a void, and as soon as this baby, the Stephanie Strange baby gets born into the world, a void pops up next to her, and she it's there immediately, and it follows her through her life, and she's throwing things into it, alcohol bottles and pill bottles, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until one night it's huge, and it's next to her, and it's swirling, and it's threatening to pull her in, and as it starts to pull her into the void, um, these these things come out of it. The nightmares, the three black cats from the stories, and I don't want to give away the rest of it. That sounds awesome. Yeah, and it it's it's very much my story, but with this this narrative that has been essential to sobriety, mm-hmm. and really helped me take pride in it and not get you know weighed down by it too much and have fun with it. And I hope that it my that it'll help other people. And what I really want to do is help other people tell their stories. And I think that could be helpful to creative people who are in the throes of this struggle to, well, what does it look like if you're, what What does your superhero look like? What does that shape up as? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is something that you, the, the comic books are something you've recently started because you've, you've been a musician for a very long time now. Yeah. Correct. correct. And I wanted to ask you about not just that transition, um, but also what it's like being a musician and also what it's like being a sober musician and having your, and you mentioned this in the email you sent me, but I've heard this from other uh, musicians who don't drink about your paychecks being contingent upon the amount of alcohol that other people um, drink. And I was, I went to go see another sober musician in Oakland, earlier this year and I talked to him afterwards and I was waiting my turn to kind of chat with him after the show. And these people were very, very drunk and they were very excited to see him. And he writes a lot of his stuff is, I don't know if you know who Mishka Shubali is, but um, you should check out his stuff. But a lot of it is dirty, gritty, talks about drinking and drugs and all that stuff and even in sobriety. And so there's a lot of this sort of um, like, when uh, Nathaniel Rakecliffe uh, sings that song SOB, you know, and everybody says, give me a drink and everybody will like put their drinks up. And it's kind of this celebratory thing when the actual uh, the, the essence of the song is about dealing with, you know, not wanting to drink or right. not. So um, in all of that, my question is, <laughs> how do you how do you navigate being a musician and and being sober and making money? doing that the short answer is that I'm still navigating it okay I feel really excited about um, having performed at the Alano Club and connecting with some other organizations and setting up um, hopefully I'm working on it right now this is very new um, setting up ability to play music 
for people in recovery. And I'll probably always play in bars. And that's great. I like that. It doesn't pay much because the main thing is the alcohol sales. And that was okay when I was a heavy drinker because, you know, I wouldn't sing the next song until everybody had a shot glass in their hand. And the bartender was happy and the business was happy and the audience was happy and we were happy except until the next day, of course. Mm-hmm. But, um, so they would invite us back and we had a lot of buzz and that was much easier. And now it's, you know, I just I have in terms of the performance, I have to ride out more awkward moments and insecurity, which I think makes me a stronger musician as well, because I'm not just dulling it to get up there. and. That's been a really long journey to be able to get up on stage and the performance is just more mellow and more coherent and less raucous. And I've learned to book places where there's, even if there's drinking, maybe it's a wine bar instead of a dive bar, even though I still, I love a good dive bar, but um, it's just, you know, learning my crowd and uh, you know, local business, I'm I'm up for supporting any kind of local business, but I don't I don't push drinks on stage anymore, obviously. Um I do say, you know, tip your bartender and um it's I'm looking for ways to expand, not an exit from that, because that's such a huge part of being a musician and reaching audience members. And I do believe that even if I'm writing about sobriety and recovery, that may not be that to somebody else, but it still hits home hard enough because we all are struggling with whatever. And um, I'm losing my track of my thought because I'm <laughs> yelling in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that do, learning how to find these find these new avenues for performance for people who are in recovery. And then that's also led to thinking about performing for seniors and performing for adults with developmental disabilities and performing for, in general, people who are disenfranchised and who don't have access to music and who are often forgotten. And a world there that I'm very, very excited about. And I think a lot of musicians limit themselves to thinking, depending on what your goal is, I'm going to play in bars, I'm going to play for a younger crowd, I'm going to get covered by the newspapers, when there's um, a deeper satisfaction that can be had for bringing music to people who really need it. Yeah, I um, I had a conversation with a woman uh, down in L.A. and she's a she's a stand up comedian. And one of the things that she does now, uh, I think it's her main her main gig is she works for uh, a company or a group that bring stand up comedy to people with Alzheimer's. So they oh. go out and it's 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 really really awesome. So, I mean, there are these other avenues for people who are, for performers who are used to, or, or thinking that they have to be relegated to being in a bar all the time. Right. And again, like you said, that can be a really cool thing and that can be fun. And, and that doesn't have to, it doesn't have to end, but sometimes you're just, I don't know. I mean, you get tired of it and you, you, you get wary of it and it's, it's, it becomes more and more of a challenge to try and connect with people when they are not entirely there. Right. I personally don't want to play for the, the crowd that's going to make the bar the most money because Mm -hmm. they're not the crowd that's listening. They're the crowd that's drinking 
and talking and having a raucous time. And that's, I've just had to accept that's not the kind of music I make anymore. And that's not the kind of show I'm going to book and that that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that Um, makes it easier. There's that, and that song you sent me one year sober. Yeah. Um, that probably doesn't go over very well at, you know, in a, in a, in a dive bar, you know, you're not, if you're playing wherever, and I don't know what the, I used to know the clubs, some of the clubs in Portland, but, um, not anymore. Uh, so, and I love, there's a line in that where you say, and I don't know if it's a rebuke, a little bit of a rebuke to AA, but it's like, you say it takes 12 steps, but I bet I can do it in 10. Is that something to that effect? Yeah. Sassy, sassy, strong headed. And I love that because in in what I hear for me is that alcoholic brain going, I don't need your I don't need your rules. I yeah. know how to do this. I can do yeah. this on my own. I don't need right. you to tell me how to do things. And But it's a great song. And I I would ask you because I have my notion of of how I might describe your music. But how how would you describe the music that you make now? The stuff like the stuff that you sent me and. Well, I've got I've got two things going on. Okay. And one is this the strange world songs and they're creepy and they're theatrical and they're really fun. They're but they're definitely still on the, the mellow. I call it gypsy soul where it's okay. sort of gypsy sounding. I know that's not a good word to use anymore, but I don't know what else to replace it with um yet. And so that's really fun and that ties into the comic books and that ties into the storytelling and it's really accessible to everybody. And mm. Then there's the more kind of straightforward me, not the Stephanie Strange character. And there's a there's a clear line between them. And that stuff is more, it's poignant, it's sharp, it's humorous, it's complicated, complex, let's say. Um, I don't I don't pull my punches, I don't spoon feed lyrics or anything like that. So if you're not listening, you're gonna miss it. And I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by some amazing musicians who really raise the music up and help it be even more accessible. But it is really lyric driven. That is what everything focuses around. Sort of this um, sharp darkness humor. I definitely hear a lot of, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong. This is what I hear, but it's this, like a lot of these large sweeping strings that are in there. And it reminds me of, and again, with the, with the lyrics, it's almost this sort of Andrew Bird esque vibe. I don't know if you're familiar with his stuff a little bit, kind of some of it, like you said, dark and maybe a little creepy and he's, he's much more maudlin, (laughs) you know, but, but, um, that was kind of a little bit of the, the feeling that I got from it as well. And I, it was, I really enjoyed what I heard and what you sent me. Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so what is, what does, um, like, what does sobriety look like for you today? I mean, are there, are there practices or, or things that you do on the regular? Do you have, do you have prayer and meditation and, and journaling and whatever? Like, what is that? How do you go about your day? Well, self-care is a huge part of it for sure. I, the first thing I do when I start to, because I keep, I keep my depression and my anxiety in check. And that is a huge part of it. It's, like I said, with, you know, addiction, some addiction is some people's bag, but everybody's got something, you know, whether it's 
intense anxiety or depression or OCD or all, you know, the millions of things that we carry around with us. And so I think self-care is a huge component. So the first thing I do when I start to feel bad is I drink water, I breathe deeply, I stretch, I make sure I've eaten vegetables. Um, I make sure I'm, I haven't isolated myself that I'm not falling into other bad habits mm. that I, you know, I, I was also raised with TV. So if I find myself on the couch for hours staring at the television, that's, you know, I have my things that I got to say, okay, you got to get out, you got to walk, you got to talk to people, you've got to do something. Nature is a big part of that too. So that's sort of my first line of defense against falling into depression because I find that not feeling well leads to wanting to drink. And then in terms of support, I talk openly and lightly about my recovery. I write about it. I am comfortable with that. I find that where some people might feel uncomfortable with it, there are other people who have this look of surprise on their face and share that they also have things that they thought they had to keep quiet. But me talking about it gives them permission to air it out. And it doesn't have to be a huge deal. So that that talking to other people is a big part of it for me too. And um, I go to AA meetings. I go to Buddhist meetings when it suits me, you know, like just, I sort of, you know, give and take, which I know they're not all intended for that, but I figure you take what you want and you leave what you don't. And that seems to be working for me for now. And I know that some people, I respect AA and um, they rely on it and it really holds a lot of people in their sobriety and holds them accountable and they find it. That's where they find their connection with other people. Um, mm. So I think it's different for everybody, but yeah. that's what it looks like for me. And then when I start to feel bad, I just, I do all those things and talk to more people and yeah, yeah, just try to take care of myself. Is it the refuge recovery meetings? Are those the ones you're talking about? The Buddhist ones? Yeah. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. actually right near my house. Yeah, they. I went to one of those for the first time with a friend of mine who does a um, he does Celtic mindfulness. His name is Frank O'Connor, and he's a very he's an awesome dude. Um, but he took me to one, and he's he's very much into it, and I I loved it. Like I was like, oh, and they even they they tell you this is not this is intended as an addendum to whatever other you know uh, recovery and sobriety that you use. Right. And you know I'm not one to promote any any particular brand whatsoever yeah. i love what you said about like take what works for you and discard the rest and um i think that too often and this is just my opinion but too often people get and and the structure was very important for me in the beginning absolutely 100 percent. i realize now that what i was lacking was structure um but that not everybody needs that. I went to a refuge recovery meeting and I got home and I was telling my girlfriend about it. And I said, yeah, they didn't really have all the structure. And like, I don't know how these people stay sober with this. And she's like, John, that's, that's cause that's not how you do it. Okay. Right. It's not about right them. Now. It's about, you know, right. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was very eye opening when she said that to me and I was like, Oh yeah, I'm the one who needs the structure. It has nothing to do with these other people. Yeah. So um, that's something that I always try to keep in mind as well. That it's not about it's not about what works for me. It's about what works for you know for everybody. 
right? Yeah, I love that. And I don't think that's addressed enough because there's no one way of doing things. When, since when in the world, in the history of the world, has there been one way to do anything? Mm-hmm. And AA has been proven so effective for so many people, but there's so, with the internet and us connecting with each other, there's so many, there are groups that meet in Portland all the time. There's neurodiversity groups and things where people are getting together and they're talking and they're challenging. And I think that there's more ways to be happily in recovery than there ever have been and more support than there ever Mm -hmm. has before. Um, And that's really exciting. And and I think it will encourage, encourages more people who, you know, that are on the fence, you know, they maybe want to try sobriety. It's easier to do that now. Can you tell me what a neurosobriety group is? (laughs) Um, It's, there's a group in Portland and, there's all they talk about all kinds of issues um, with from neuroscience and mindfulness and um, toxic po- positivity the the blanket of positivity that um, sometimes keeps us from looking at some of the darker stuff um, so stuff like that those are the kind of topics and they get together and they talk mm-hmm. about them and sometimes it's coloring or crafts or sometimes it's just straight discussion or a speaker and um, yeah there's people that are just you can start it up and you can make a Facebook group and invite people and that, that kind of stuff is flourishing. Huh? Um, What is toxic positivity? I mean, I get, I kind of get the idea of what you're, what you're saying, but can you expand a little bit? I don't know. I mean, you're in California, right? Oh yeah. So you probably have some (laughs) of that there too. It's, um, the idea is that this sort of everything's going to be okay, everything's good, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, blessings, blessings, blessings can turn into putting a blanket on really looking at, because sometimes it's not okay. Sometimes things need to change. As we know, sometimes that rock bottom is an essential component to recovery. And, you know, I don't think that I think positivity has played a huge part of my sobriety, thinking positively, making sure that I get out of that mindset that was keeping me feeling sorry for myself and feeling overwhelmed. But at the same time, I'm a big fan of using humor and humor is looks at the dark stuff. You need to have that to kind of pull it up. So Mm -hmm. toxic positivity is where it's it's not really thoughtful. It's just this kind of blanket over everything and stuffs the problems down kind of like avoidance yeah yeah yeah, I hear that I'm I definitely um there's a lot of I I believe in being grateful every day and and yes there's a lot of that in in California for sure um but I I think that I yes I don't I it's important to take those things that are difficult. And like you said, something is not okay. That means it needs to change. And to create that change for myself, I need to look at it and and dig through it. Right. I have to kind of, in a lot of ways, sift through the dumpster of my brain and emotions and try and clean it out and see what's going on in there. What stinks, what's rotting in the, yeah. in the fridge right. and yeah. what needs to get thrown out kind it's of, not you know? pleasant. Yeah. Uh, and but, it doesn't having, feel good. but having a clean refrigerator is a, is a beautiful thing, you know, and yeah. you can restock it with fresh, healthy, good stuff. And so first um, you get your hands dirty. <laughs> this is true. This is true. 
Um, so yeah, I love that idea. Um, neurodiversity groups. I'm going to be looking this up. Yeah. Um, I don't know the exact title, but that was the name of one of the classes and yeah. Um, what else was I, I wanted to ask you, um, what do you, is there anything that you struggle with today in sobriety as far as from maybe not alcohol, maybe not pills, maybe, you know, we talked about food, but like, are, are, there, are there any struggles that you have today in sobriety? Yeah, I mean, it comes in waves. Sometimes some some weeks and months are easier and sometimes it hits me like a wave and it just, that's just how it is. And I just kind of have to ride the wave out. Um, I guess I found that when I crave alcohol and when I feel like I'm a little bit closer to that edge, it's because there's something else going on. And that is the challenge is not having, sometimes I feel like I don't have a chance to rest. Like I just got this brain nagging at me all the time. And I struggle to not feel a little bit sorry for myself of like, well, everybody else has gets to have a break from their brain for a little bit and um, steering away from that mindset and tackling the stuff that's underneath um, what everybody has their own stuff you drink to escape, to cover up and to hide from things. So facing that stuff is very challenging. Sometimes it's hard, hard work and that I think is the biggest challenge for me is continuing to look at that and continuing to address that. Even when I'm tired, even when I'm struggling financially, even when I'm in chronic pain, um, that is a huge part of it for me is treating pain, whether it was emotional or physical and what that looks like as I get older. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there's, there's lots of challenges, but it's, facing it piecemeal and seeking help when I need it and um, trying to not let myself slip too far into feeling like I'm alone with it. And like, this is a heavy burden that nobody else has ever carried. I don't see it. I'm just carrying the heaviest boulder in the whole world. Um, so, you know, moving further away from that. And so continuing to write and share my stories and um, perform on stage and be mm so open is mm -hmm. a huge it's an answer for that one of the answers okay so i guess and also um i want to wrap it up here in a little bit but i um where can people find you find your stuff like i read some of your your writings but um, one of my favorites was the um there was a couple of them but there was the it was the prayer for the patron saint of baristas was great and and there's this thing, there's this video on your Instagram where it's a day in the life of a musician. And oh, it's that was a good one. The best. It's really good. I was, I, I pulled coffee for many years in Seattle and we used to call ourselves Sprobots. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it was just it was really great. So where can people find all of these, the, the music, the comic books, everything? Well, the music is strangeandthefamiliars.com. Because okay. Strange and the Familiars is the name of the band. And the writing is bellastrano.com, which is B-E-L-L-A-S-T-R-A-N-O. And that means strange beauty. I really tried to wrap it under this umbrella of the Stephanie Strange character. So Googling Stephanie Strange, Strange and the Familiars, Bellastrano, 
Nina nightmare gets you to the Instagram stuff and the Facebook. And I love, I love it when people reach out to me. I love interacting with people. I love sending folks stuff that's unreleased. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find all of my profiles are public. So the writing is on Bellastrato. The music is strange and the familiars. And then I have music up on SoundCloud and Bandcamp and Reverb Nation. And I've, tried to make it as accessible as possible. Um, but in terms of for folks in recovery, the SoundCloud account has some songs about um, recovery on it. And then the writing, I have a tab of memoirs and that I do a lot of recovery writing there. Um, and like I said, I'm, I'm really happy to talk to people if they want to email me, that's completely welcome. Okay, very cool. And then so this the comics I can get at Bellastrano as well. Right. Yes. That's what I saw. OK. Yep. I just put mm -hmm. a shopping cart. I'm navigating website, building my own website stuff. And so I have a shopping cart on there. But also reaching out to me is a good way to reach me as well, because if you want to buy like more than one thing, if you want to buy the comic book or pre-order the next comic book or a shirt or CD or whatever, um, I can do that through email as well. And then I do have a Patreon account where people mm -hmm. can, you know, do a dollar a month or $5 a month. And then they, I try to make the rewards so that everybody gets everything. If you pledge any amount, then you get the comic book and you get the CD and you get poems and you get stories and things like that. That's cool. Um, yeah. What is, what is the Patreon? It's what, what is, what is Patreon? No, no. What, what, what is the, the, the address? What is your address on Patreon? It's a Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Stephanie Strange. Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm, I really, um, I appreciate you reaching out to me to be on this podcast. Um, that's a first for me. Yeah. Um, I am thankful for your patience with our, our power outage of last week and everything's, you know, worked out and it was, it was nothing more than a minor inconvenience for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but, um, it was so, it's so nice to meet you and, Awesome. Oh, I wanted to ask you too, what, what, I love your website, um, for the writing and I'm wondering what you use, what, um, like, is it Squarespace or it's WordPress, Wix? WordPress. Okay. Yep. Very easy. I don't know HTML. I don't, it's, uh, my partner has his own website. And so he was, you know, he showed me the first time how to do stuff. And since then mm. it's just been, um, organizing it and throwing up photos and it's really straightforward um so that's been okay nice to be able to put the shopping cart and everything kind of on those two websites okay cool um and then um yeah i i just i can't thank you enough it's been really nice to to talk with you it was to nice to you. talk with you too yeah thank you so much and i really appreciate your perspective i it's so nice talking to <laughs> other other people in recovery who are doing cool things yeah yeah, yeah. i if you're uh, if you're ever in uh, Eugene, my buddy Jerry works at the uh, the tattoo shop downtown. I don't know if you need any fresh ink, but <laughs> I gotta get my little. I got notes. I gotta get brushed up a little bit. Um, but yeah, awesome, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. It was really nice talking to you. Too. Yeah. One week sober, the rest of this godforsaken life to go. How could you love someone you've never known? Doubt me.
tell me I'm weak Put your hand on my mouth Give me a reason to speak Tell me there's still 
time left Hold me Tell me I've earned my rest